This podcast has conversations around different mental health experiences that may be distressing for some people. If that doesn't feel like something you want to explore today, you might want to visit another podcast and come back to us another time. Discovery College acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the elders past and present. They have never ceded sovereignty. In this podcast, we share stories that help us learn from each other, connect us and inspire growth. We want to acknowledge that this way of being, of coming together to share knowledge and stories, is a tradition that has already existed on this land for hundreds of thousands of years as a part of the culture of First Nations people. Discovery College acknowledges the views shared in this podcast are about mental health experiences, but are not a substitute for professional mental health advice and support. The views in this podcast are not the views of Alfred Health, but are the views of the individuals we've had conversations with. The stories we share on this podcast aren't just stories, but memories of the people who have bravely shared their experiences with us. Remember to take care of yourself as you listen, as well as to take care of the stories that you hear. Extremely Human is a conversation about the profound experience of extreme states. When we speak about extreme states, we want to explore a more humanistic way to understand people's experiences that aren't always shared by others. Each extreme state holds different meaning for each person, including those related to psychosis, depression, grief and addiction. As we chat with a variety of humans, we explore the important question, how can we respond to distress with greater compassion and humanity? We sat down to chat with Mary O'Hagan, who's currently the Executive Director of Lived Experience in the Department of Health in Victoria. Mary shares snippets from her memoir, Madness Made Me, and speaks about how value and meaning can be derived from experiences of madness. We ponder what it could look like if communities looked after each other and created space for people in distress. All right, Mary, thank you for coming in, joining us. I was wondering if you could share just a little bit about yourself, what, what you're passionate about, anything that you feel like you want the listeners to hear. Yeah, so I guess the key thing listeners might want to know is that I have my own lived experience of mental distress uh, and that occurred at, at a fairly discreet time in my life between about the ages of 18 and 27. I was um, pretty much, uh, I was pretty involved in the mental health system for most of that time and it had a hugely disruptive impact on my life. Since then I haven't had any major uh, distress and I've been working in the mental health area trying to bring about the kind of change that I thought was necessary based on my experience of using services and just on my general experience of mental distress and of the way that society and people who are looking on uh, respond to it. Mm. 
That sounds like the perfect person to have on the podcast then because that's what we're trying to do. That's what it's all about. Mary, I think we've kind of let you know about this, but we try to ask this all of our guests a bit of a starting question, um, which is a bit different to talking about extreme states, but we try to think about, you know, how different people might have disproportionate reactions to events or things that happen in their life. And we're wondering if you've got a story about something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can flare up quite a oh, lot. Can you? <laughs> uh, I don't do it that often. I probably did it more when I was younger. I flare up when, uh, you know, things like when the computer's not working, I can start yelling at the computer. <laughs> oh, spinny, um, the spinny wheel of death is the worst thing in yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, when I'm on the phone to the bank and I've been waiting for 45 minutes and I say I want some help with something, and they say we can't help you. That's uh, mm-hmm. I get very sort of uh, I can get a little bit heated at those moments okay. too. So, so yes, I do have um, disproportionate uh, responses, and it's one it's one thing that I'd really like to change about myself um, if I could. But it's very difficult because they um, I find this flare up actually happens very quickly is before you have actually have time to think I, th- I, mm. I guess yeah it's kind of very quick mm. and very and very quick to dissipate as well mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm. so it's hard to interrupt when it's yes happening. I think I think it yeah. is very hard to mm. interrupt in fact if I took a really concerted effort at doing that I might be able to uh, but it doesn't really happen often enough to do it and it hasn't you know it hasn't had a a big impact on sure my relationships my partner doesn't like hearing me go on about the computer or the bank or whatever in the next room very much but um no it's it's not it's not uh it hasn't been hugely disruptive to my life but it's something that I'd really quite like to (laughs) be able to modify among other things about myself it's pretty human, though, don't you reckon? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mary, so we're chatting in this podcast about extreme states, and that means different things to different people. I was just wondering what it meant for you, if it had any meaning at all. What what comes to mind? Well, I guess in my life, you can be in extreme states when you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, actually, that's a great point. Uh, and in fact, um. Someone once said to me, "Well, people get psychotic every night when they when they're dreaming." So I think I think yes. that's uh, quite quite an interesting mm. take on it. I think I've been in extreme states um, when I've been in grief or mm. uh, when I've been in a state of psychological injury. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that sends you into a state that is um, more extreme than your day to day reality. And then I guess the big experience of extreme states I've had was that those nine years when I was um, experiencing my existential crises, uh, major mood swings, Mm -hmm. and uh, psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. Was that something that you would want to talk about as in oh yeah talk about it I mean I I've spent my life talking about it so there's no no problem talking about it yeah Yeah. what was that like nine years is a long time to be in an extreme state yeah 
Well, I was in and out of the extreme states. I wasn't in mm. them mm-hmm. constantly for nine years. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I just ask you before you tell us more about that, Mary, I wonder what you think about the use of the term extreme states and as an alternative to other ways we might describe these experiences. Uh, I quite like the term extreme states. I find mental illness uh, a problematic term. Why is that? Because it, uh, the, the idea that this is an illness is just one model or one way of understanding Mm. Uh, these extreme states Mm. and I think that people really need to be able to decide for themselves what they have their own explanatory framework or their own understanding of what what the experience is and why it's happening. Uh, Unfortunately once you get into the mental health system you're told this is what you have and um, there isn't much opportunity often Mm-hmm. for people to explore uh, other ways of understanding it. Mm. I I think I heard you say at the start that you've been working for many years now trying mm. to cause change in yeah, the system. Yeah. Um, is that kind of some of the changes you're trying to see happen? Yeah, I, th- I think really in a way the, the change in the way people services and society respond to people at some level is based on how they understand the experiences that people are having or the behaviour they're showing. Mm. And so I think it is quite important that we challenge the way, you know, the clinical worldview and society have viewed these experiences because if you... Because that kind of becomes the fundamental platform on which all service and societal responses are built. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the West, at least, and in, actually in many other cultures, uh, you know, madness or whatever you want to call it has been uh, misunderstood, stigmatised, and people have experienced uh, quite a lot of discrimination. The reason for that goes to the way people understand those experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for instance, in Māori culture, and mm. you probably tell, I, I, by the way I speak, I come from New Zealand, there is a term called matakiti, which is uh, really loosely translated as a difficult gift. Mm. And, and, it, and it's kind of... It's used to describe a series of experiences which might include psychosis. Mm-hmm. And in that translation, you can see that there is something positive in that yeah. uh, in that experience, in, in, mm. the, in the cultural understanding of that experience. Mm. Uh, and when you have uh, some, but an understanding that's also uh, an edgy, difficult experience. So... If you have that cultural understanding, then you're going to treat people with more respect uh, and the potential for stigma and discrimination really is much reduced. Mm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I've never heard it being described as a difficult gift before. Right. It makes me think a lot about, you know, kind of Buddhist 
beliefs around yeah. adversity. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. But also the power of language. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I think I used to think, oh, they're just words. Yeah. They can't really impact you, but yeah. they do. They shape the way you see mm. someone and their experience. And thinking about it with um, in the explanatory models being open, it also leaves for solutions to be open or yeah. oppo- for yeah. greater opportunity for yeah. for healing or for responses. Yes, that's true. And if we call something an illness and we put doctors in charge of it, right. we're going to get a very narrow, and the doctors command most of the resources, mm-hmm. we're going to get a very narrow range of responses mm-hmm. that may be somewhat helpful to some people. Mm. They won't be everything they need. Mm. They may not make any difference to some people and they'll be quite harmful to um, others. So Mm -hmm. I think it's very unfortunate that we have a legal service system where at the hub of that system sits the the kind of, you know, psychiatry. Mm. And I've never been anti-psychiatry at all, but... We need psychiatry as one of the spokes of mm-hmm. the system and, and not at the hub. Yeah. Uh, and I think when I look at uh, systems around the world and efforts at reform, the one thing uh, reform efforts fail to do is take psychiatry away from the hub right. and make them a spoke in the system. Right. Mm-hmm. That real yeah. decentering. Mm? That decentering of psychiatry yeah, the, the is really not. Yeah, the decentering of psychiatry. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, I think um, it can psychiatry can be very useful for people. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I'm not an at all an abolition abolitionist about it, but um, equally useful can be stable housing, mm-hmm. uh, help to find meaning in your distress, mm-hmm. cultural and spiritual support. Uh, you know, getting a job and being socially connected. Uh, mm-hmm. These are all equally important. Yeah. And yet we spend probably in Victoria still maybe about 95% of the budget on pills and pillows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pills and pillows. It's a great statement. It really sort of talks, what comes up for me is just the reductionist mm, mm. nature of how what mm. we're investing in. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering, Mary, from your experiences of being in extreme states, whether that's you in your own extreme state or supporting other people, what do you think is the most helpful thing that people can do for someone? Well, for me, when I was in my extreme states, the thing that helped most was kindness and acceptance. Mm -hmm. People who got agitated and fearful were not helpful, or who people who got controlling were not helpful, but people who were just kind, uh, who accepted me and didn't really expect too much from me. Yeah. yeah. I think that's such a key, just letting someone be as they are. So simple. Why do we keep overlooking this? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think uh, a lot of the most effective uh, approaches in mental health are some of the simplest ones. Mm -hmm. And I think there's um, a huge place for, you know, just calm kindness Mm -hmm. uh, that trumps a lot of the other clever tricks and interventions that Mm -hmm. people 
uh, throw at people in the yeah. system. So what what went wrong? Why have we why have we sort of lost that ability? Uh, I think it's a, that's a complex question, and I think you have to zoom way out from psychiatry itself mm-hmm. into our culture. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think uh, there's a cultural fear of madness, and madness is pretty scary. And not just for, often for the people who are experiencing it, but for the people who look on. We have a, uh, and this is very historical, but we have a, a, a set of quite magical community expectations on psychiatry mm-hmm. to predict risk, mm-hmm. which they can't do very well at all, but mm-hmm. we still expect them to. Uh, and to... Um, respond to it in coercive ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we've got several coercive sort of systems in our society and they're all kind of slightly, they all kind of, they're slightly interlinked and they're really responding to community fears, uh, whether they're uh, realistically based or not on people who behave differently Mm-hmm. or who, who are a threat. And, of course, they cause people, uh, particularly psychiatrists, to become very risk-averse. And so what do they do? They, they've, they use the tools they've got available to them. That's the Mental Health Act, medication and locked wards. Mm-hmm. And that's what they use in order to... Uh, manage the risk. Now, the risk is not even necessarily to the person themselves, uh, but it's to their professional reputation and to the organisation. So we've got a pretty unhealthy dynamic Mm. um, operating there, and and I think um, we're not going to get very far until we sort of break that that particular dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm. I... I'm interested to hear a little bit about a memoir. Yeah, so I wrote a memoir that was, it took me 10 years to write, Mm. uh, and it was called Madness Made Me, and um, it was published in 2014. So it's it's a wee way... Yeah, congratulations, by the way. That's uh, a congratulations. That's yeah, a it was quite a job. Thing uh, to in do. some ways, um, mm. I do like writing, and uh, it was probably one of the most satisfying achievements of my career. Mm. Finishing that memoir, the whole idea of the memoir was to show that madness is a full human experience that meaning and value can be derived from. One of the things I wrote was about the relationship between what I called madness and sanity. I wrote this, The conventional wisdom says madness and sanity can never meet over the great wall that separates them. But I have experienced both, and they bleed into each other like water into wine. My madness and my sanity are not two parallel stories. They are one story in two dimensions. Madness and sanity are not two different garments. They are the warp and the weft of the same fabric. Sanity is the container madness sits in. They are made for each other like a a cup is made to hold drink. 
Sanity stops madness from spilling everywhere. Madness stops sanity from confining us to the tyranny of the ordinary. So I had a lot of reflections in it about the nature of the experiences I was having uh, and not just the a description of the actual experiences. Mm. Yeah, it's so powerful what you've written. It's, I've never heard anyone write like that on that topic. One of the things I really wanted to convey is that these experiences have meaning and you can learn an awful lot from them. I found it really difficult to use the usual tools of analysis to understand those psychotic experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I sort of grappled with this um, quite a lot. Uh, when I was trying to piece it all together and what I found is that nobody really wanted to help me so the professionals they just wanted to know what my symptoms were and and they didn't really they didn't really um, they didn't really sort of take any under, any interest in the meaning I might derive from it mm. and um, I've got I've got a piece here that describes the the dilemma I was in when I was going through those experiences. So I start off by saying that there are many stories about madness. For mad people, the stories are of a powerful experience. For psychiatrists, it is a collection of symptoms. And for families, it's disturbing behaviour. For the public, the story of madness is enshrined in the dictionary in everyday language. Madness is insanity, foolishness is wild and uncontrollable. Madness has been described again and again by people who have never experienced it. The mad person's definition of madness has never made it into into the dictionary or into conversation, media stories, literature or mental health discourse. Our version of madness can even elude us. We lack a validating language to make meaning from it. Our madness stands outside in the dark, knocking on the door of meaning, struggling to get in. My own stories of my madness struggled to take shape, while other people's stories of it took instant inspiration from the dictionary, diagnostic manuals and a wider culture that completely shunned it. Most of the stories of those who look on, seeing only snatches of madness, portray it as all bad. My story of my madness, though, is fuller than those who looked on. As well as being the most intricate story, it is the only unbroken one, the only story that had a witness present from start to finish and every moment in between. That witness was me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that, that's... that's um. That's kind of uh, a, a reflection on how the there are so many people, so many sort of ideas about what we're going through, mm-hmm. and yet as a group of people, we were never we were never supported to really uh, create our own meaning about these experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you did you uh, were you able in those years to find a meaning making? process yeah so I so what I what I decided one of the things that was different for me than 
for a lot of other people is I was never clear about why I ended up in with this, these existential crises and these mood swings and psychosis. So it was never that clear to me. And a lot of people say, well, some really bad things happened to me. Mm. Uh, and that's why I ended up there. So, so in a way that ex- if you've got a clear explanation, you can weave it into the story of your life a bit easier. Mm-hmm. And I had a real struggle with that. Um, and I've got another piece where I describe the way I started to be able to integrate it into my life. And it talks about the importance of my peers at the same time. I start off by saying, my madness was one of the most profound experiences I ever had. It was as, as intense as falling in love, a religious revelation or overwhelming grief. I don't. I didn't want to romanticise madness, but I knew it deserved the same status and respect as any other powerful human experience. What did it mean when the world was too beautiful for me to look at? What did it mean to be in the black bo- inside the black box? What did it mean that I lived in such extreme zones of existence? Nobody really knew or cared, except me. Mostly it meant terrible suffering and my desperate struggle to find a valued place in the world. At first it meant wandering round the crumbling edges of human experiences like a lost explorer. But over the years I met many fine people who were mad like me. I learnt that our madness had taken us to a foreign land where only mad people could go to. Some of us stayed in this land for a long time while others got out and kept returning to it. Mental health professionals stood at the border, trying to pull people out of the Madland, even the ones that wanted to stay. They knew the Madland was as a, mad pl- as a bad place where people got lost, sometimes forever, but most of them had never been there. My peers helped to show me that I was not the lone lost explorer I thought I was. The Madland, for all its perils, had some of the most enchanting scenery in the world, like a land that has mountains and ravines, rivers and caves, blinding sun and swirling storms. The Madland could be a place of beauty as well as danger. My peers helped me understand that there was a whole tribe of us who'd been there and seen many of the same things, things that other people didn't understand. Many people reached the border of the Madland at some time in their lives. Most managed to skirt their way around the edge of it and look on with dread at a distance. But those of us who go right into its belly come out with richer pictures of a being that has been lost and found again. The tragedy is, no one wants these pictures. Like the paintings of some abstract artists, people look at these pictures and think they could have been done by a child of three. My own pictures of madness came in the form of words and metaphors. At their most powerful, my words floated in from the blackness and passed through me onto paper. I made meaning, not in spite of my madness, but because of it. It was not the kind of meaning that answered ambitious intellectual questions such as why. Like haunting musical poetry, 
it was a meaning saturated with soul, an intuitive expression of mean of being without the labour of logic. So that's how I kind of, um, in the end, came to understand it, not from an intellectual perspective, but more from, uh, I guess, um, an aesthetic or poetic or something perspective That's, or emotional perspective. It's the most incredible visuals I've ever heard being told about madness. It's such a gift for people who haven't been through it to yeah, understand yeah, it. Yeah. So many people can't articulate that experience and to hear it spoken about in a way that you're just amazing storyteller. <laughs> it's um, well, that's I, such a gift. For me, it's a bit like uh, sculpting stone. You, you, mm-hmm. you, like a lot of that writing's had five drafts. You know, yeah. you don't you don't just sort of sp- you don't just sort of spin it out um, in one go. Such a gift <laughs> to the world. Yeah, I can't wait to um, read it. Yeah, now yeah. That so I know if it's you out there. if you want to um, find it, uh, it's called Madness Made Me, and it's available as an ebook or a paperback on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Awesome. We'll put mm-hmm. that in the show notes. You seem to have had like a a lot of good things come out of your experiences. Yeah, I think that's true. One of the things that makes me so sad is seeing people who are for whatever reason and there's a whole bunch of reasons why this might happen and some of them can be laid at the feet of the system but who stay stuck Mm, in that place you know who remain socially isolated Mm -hmm. without a contributing role Mm -hmm. in poverty uh, and and with a very diminished sense of self and uh, self-agency, that really um, fills me with great sadness. Amazing. That there are quite a few people, and our system actually encourages some of this. And, and one of the reasons I was able to get beyond that point was probably my original privilege. Yeah. And I can't emphasise enough how being white and middle class was pretty helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And being brought up to be a questioning person was very, very helpful to me mm-hmm. in navigating my way through and out of that system. It, I've had some pretty amazing uh, mm-hmm. opportunities and experiences in my career mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have perhaps had otherwise if this hadn't happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I would just like everyone else who goes through those experiences to be able to get to a point in their lives where they can see the benefit of it and yeah. move move to another place where they're not sort of, you know, where it's not sort of dominating their lives. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the power of lived experience stories. And it's so yeah. important to hear stories like yours because I've spoken to a lot of people who've had very extreme things happen to them. But when you speak to them, they say, I don't regret any of it. And I, no. I wouldn't take it back. No. We're yeah. so caught up in not letting it happen at all that we're just not even 
letting people go through it and making meaning of it. Yeah, or defining it in such a limited way. Yeah, because if you don't speak, if you don't Mm. actually hear people Mm. who have been through these stories, you you make Mm. your own assumptions about Mm. what that's like Mm. and you miss all the magical parts. Yeah. Mm. And there were some incredible, I had some incredible experiences. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had some terribly scary, awful experiences, but... Oh, I had some amazing experiences. And, you know, in some ways I live in the in the sort of normal zone. I haven't had a mood swing for years. And sometimes I'm, I miss it a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I think, oh, they were such powerful experiences. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to the outsider of the foreign land standing on the edge trying to... <laughs> pull people back. Pull, pull people back. <laughs> I would probably say get inside people's souls instead of just looking at their symptoms. Okay, how do yeah. you do that? Well, you listen to people. One of the one of the things people can do instead of reading those awful papers they read, they could read more accounts of mm. people's accounts of their experiences. Mm-hmm. One one approach that we're exploring at the moment in the Department of Health is some sort of uh, deep dialogue where people with different perspectives come together and talk about these things. And, and one one kind of area of uh, dialogue could be, uh, you know, the the different experiences of the same phenomenon, like someone has a psychosis, uh, there's the person's own experience, there's the people who love them who look on and think, fuck, you know, Mm -hmm. and then there's the professionals who, for slightly different reasons, think, fuck, (laughs) (laughs) and um, and how how you can mediate those different different realities to come to a point where the, um, the experience itself is just honoured a bit more. One of the the things about it is when you're in those states, there's God, there's only room for one. Mm. You, you can't, it's very hard to share. Mm. Uh, so it's very isolating and, and very hard to describe too. Mm. My descriptions, and I'm not actually describing mm. being inside the experience, I, I've just been reading reflections on yeah, it. yeah. I worked quite hard at describing those experiences and I can understand why people find that really, really difficult. And, you know, the open dialogue approach should open the way for these kinds of discussions where people can feel safe and appreciated enough to talk about what it's like for them, well, everyone. Yeah, Mm, yeah. mm, mm. Yeah, where people's experiences can met with curiosity and respect yeah. and yeah. time, Yeah, I think, just, yeah. you know, being with. Yeah. I think one of the problems with the mental health system, and more so than when I was using it, is um, just how overrun it is and how it seems to me that the job of the day is to keep as many people out as possible <laughs> um, mm. uh, because people are, there's so much demand. Mm. Um, but I, I think there's a cultural issue behind that. I think 
if we invested more in communities, mm. much more down the prevention and promotion end, mm-hmm. and we equipped communities to look out for each other and look after each other, mm-hmm. um, I think we could do something about the demand. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, such a great point. Because I think people, as soon as they feel, oh, I'm not coping, they just go off to a GP. Mm. Yeah. But what does a GP do? Give them a pill right. or try and refer them to a psychiatrist. And if they're right. feeling really shit, they go to ED. Yeah. And uh, that's a very dehumanising experience for a lot of people. So, so I think there's a cultural... I don't, I don't think it's just... We, we should just understand it as, oh, a whole lot of people are getting mental illness and they have to go and see a professional. I think we need to think, why is our culture structured in such a way that uh, we, can't, we can't take care of each other Mm. We can't, you know, t- sometimes take care of ourselves, mm-hmm. and as soon as things get a bit rough, we uh, we resort to the medical professionals. Yeah, it's yeah. so true. You know, when we think about the the role of social determinants, yeah, yeah, you know, and the yeah. community would meet those mm. needs yeah. in many ways, yeah, wouldn't they? Yeah. And and when there was problems or difficulties, yeah. the community would respond. But yeah. now it's service provision. Yeah, yeah. and I think. Um, uh, what's happened now? I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to glorify the role of communities historically either, because no, there was other they, bad they've, things. They've been a bit cruel at times. Right. But uh, what what's happened in the last couple of hundred years is that the service system has actually taken over the role that was taken over by aunties and mm. grannies and neighbours and communities, mm. and um, and actually disabled. Yeah. those uh, skills that people had. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and so, and I think that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which has also contributed, I think, to the pathologization. Yeah. You know, because this is no longer a human yeah, yeah. experience, yeah. is something going wrong. Yeah. And it, then it requires it, an expert. Or, it requires an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, of someone who doesn't know you. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. someone who doesn't know you is paid mm. to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So we've spoken a little bit about what the mental health world doesn't do so well, but we're wondering if you could think of a time where you'd seen you've seen someone handle distress. Oh yes. Well Yes. Yeah, look, I yes, and I I think it's really good to focus on because I, I get into critique a lot. We all um, can, yeah. And I think it's good to focus on um some of the things that work well. I remember when I was in the um, hospital, I used to go into um, almost sort of catatonic depression, I I guess you'd you'd call it, where I'd just be mute and be in bed all day doing, you know. And I remember this nurse used to come every afternoon and sort of unfold me out of the bed <laughs> and stand me up very gently. <laughs> oh, so and she wouldn't say a word to me. Yeah. And she'd just take me for a little very slow walk around the grounds and um yeah. and put me back into bed. And I, I it's such a simple thing, but mm-hmm. I I just remember her acceptance mm. and her not trying to make me do anything, not trying to curry me up because I 
I, I, I was incredibly slowed down. Mm. Um, and But just, um, just the kindness of that. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it's quite hard to be with people who are in extreme states. You know, I've had my experience with friends and my partner and, you know, it's pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we need to acknowledge that mm-hmm. for people who who are sort of looking on. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of very humane approaches that have been built up. The, the problem is they're on the outer edges of the system mm-hmm. and they don't they don't get sort of built into the the fabric of the system. They're just little outliers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that worries me about the growth of peer support, uh, and, I, and I've been going around visiting mainstream clinical mental health services, and it's very, very hard to maintain your identity and integrity in such a clinically dominated system. Mm-hmm. And so there have been times when I've thought, oh, the peer support workers are kind of starting to think a bit like clinicians. And I think we, we really need to give people the education, the supervision and the support themselves, but also to... Um, to, for the services to understand that their, you know, their dominance is, is actually killing off a, a, a very precious kind of emerging mm-hmm. uh, approach that, mm. that could be very helpful to the way they do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think people mean to do that. I just think, mm. um, I mean, I often reflect on my life as a, as a Pākehā or a white person in New Zealand, and now you just go around, you're the dominant culture, mm. you just go around doing things the way, you, mm. uh, the way you're used to, and you don't always realise that what you're doing is suppressing the other cultures around you. Mm. And I think that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think, I think there's a lot of work to be done in the lived experience workforce development on that organisational readiness, but also on supporting that workforce to hold true to their identity and values. Thank you so much, Mary. Oh, yeah, this has been a very yeah. powerful conversation. I've been yeah. so like drawn into your words and yeah, you've given such a unique but very important perspective. So thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. A difficult gift. Difficult gift, what a name. It is a really appropriate name, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. it's a beautiful reframe. Yeah. You know, the kind of things that can happen or what's possible through suffering. That Mm. came out of a lot, didn't Mm. it? She was speaking about how she actually missed those experiences as well. Mm -hmm. That's not something that people generally talk about. Like a lot I feel like a lot of people might be shocked if you heard someone say that they they miss being in that realm. Mm. How amazing were Mary's descriptions of madness? Oh, there were so many metaphors in there, wasn't there, and images mm-hmm. that, you know, listening to her speak, I had these, could could have these pictures in my mind that were so powerful. So vivid. Yeah. Where I landed was, 
you know, at the end of it all was just this really sitting with this confirmation, mm-hmm. I guess, that of the belief in love and healing, mm-hmm. love and compassion and kindness mm-hmm. and, you know, the healing power of that. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps coming up, doesn't it? It really does. I feel like we're so lucky to have Mary Mm. working in our mental health system and doing the job she's doing now, but also all the things that she's done. Mm. Um, It's a life. Yeah. Really committed Mm -hmm. um, to the benefit of others. And I find her incredibly inspiring. Absolutely. It's a real honour to have been able to talk with her today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you wanted to stay in touch or learn more about Discovery College, please head to our website, discovery.college.